The scripture for today is John chapter 18, beginning at verse 28 through chapter 19, verse 16. If you would turn with me, please. It will also be on the screen behind us. Then they, le- then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, 
he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. What is truth? The phrase or the question of Pontius Pilate rings throughout the centuries. What is truth? The concept of truth has been dying a slow death, it would seem, for many years, and it's become even more noticeable in the past decade or two. In the early 2000s, comedian Stephen Colbert picked up on this cultural phenomenon by coining the term truthiness which went on to become the Merriam-Webster's Word of the Year in 2006. Ten years later, in 2016, in the wake of the presidential election and Brexit and accusations across the political spectrum about fake news, Oxford Dictionaries named Post-Truth its Word of the Year. And shortly thereafter, commenting on the presidential inauguration of Donald Trump, Kellyanne Conway, his advisor, famously spoke about alternative facts. In response, Time Magazine blazoned the question, is truth dead, of the cover of its magazine on April 3rd, 2017. Then in 2018, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani claimed truth isn't truth during an interview with NBC's Chuck Todd. And of course, let's not forget about Bill Clinton splitting hairs over the definition of sexual relations and existentially pondering the attorney's definition of what is, is, back in 1998. Truthiness has cut both ways across the aisle in a post-truth age. And so the question, what is truth? The question that rings through the centuries that in many 
corners dominates our time, but it is not a new question. On the day that Jesus was condemned to die, that question pierced through the events and interactions. And in John 18 and 19, we see this interaction between the material king, the governor, Pontius Pilate, and a spiritual king, Jesus. The high priest, remember, Caiaphas had now sent Jesus over to the Roman governor for judgment. Remember the scene, remember what's happening. Rome, the Roman Empire has expanded throughout much of the known world. The Romans occupied Israel, and as a result, they set up a government structure there. The Jews lived under Roman rule, and Pontius Pilate was the governor of the region. He, by all historical accounts, was not up to the task. The role required a delicate balance of leadership, political savvy, and the right types of force and pressure. Pilate did none of these things well. And as the Romans occupied Israel, their governance was constantly being questioned because the Jewish uprisings regularly contributed to this questioning. It was in the best interest of the Roman ruler to keep the peace with the Jews. But Pilate's actions often contributed to the opposite. Pontius Pilate grew up in Seville, Spain. He was ambitious and in his ambition, he joined the Roman legions. Eventually, this brought him back to Rome, where he met and he married his wife, Claudia. Claudia was the granddaughter of Emperor Augustus. He married into power and influence. She was a woman with many character flaws, though not as many as her mother. And Pilate, had deficiencies to equal hers. His position here in Judea as the procurator was one that he almost certainly had because of his family relationships. Pilate was brutal in his tactics. He was known for exercising power carelessly. Occasionally, he would have his soldiers raid the sacred treasury of the temple of the Jews for funds. He, on other occasions, would attack Jews by placing plainclothes soldiers within large crowds of people. And if there was a demonstration of sorts against the Romans, those plainclothes soldiers would draw their daggers and stab the Jews in the back. Some accounts have Pilate mocking and desecrating certain forms of Jewish worship throughout the use of the crest of the emperor Tiberius in different Jewish locations around town, and even going so far as to mix Gentile blood into Jewish sacrifices. Pilate hated the Jews, and the Jews hated Pilate. And so when the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate, they knew that the Jewish uprisings in Judea over the last number of years 
meant that Pilate was out of favor with Rome. He needed to do anything he could to keep the peace. And because he had pressure from Rome to keep this peace, these Jewish leaders were not bringing Jesus to be judged by Pilate simply to honor his authority. They were bringing Jesus to be judged by Pilate because they thought that he could do the dirty work of public execution on their behalf. Using the pressure of Rome to their advantage, they thought that if they could pressure him from the other side with the threat of another Jewish uprising, then he would have to kill Jesus like they wanted him to. And so, the texture of this interaction just got a lot deeper. This interaction is one in which Pilate is caught in the middle, and Jesus is the target. The Jews present him to Pilate because he claims to be a king, they say. It's a claim they don't really care about, but they know that he should never abide another material king in this kingdom. The Jews wanted Jesus dead, not because he claimed to be a king, but as we see later in this text, because he claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be one with the Father. And when somebody claims to be the Son of God, and he claims to be one with the Father, he's claiming to be God himself. And to them, this was blasphemous. Now, they could have taken him out of town and stoned him for this blasphemy if they wanted to. But these Jewish leaders wanted something that was a little more public. They wanted something that was significantly more agonizing. They wanted him to die the Roman way. They wanted him to be crucified. That way, as he hung on the cross, everybody could see that he wasn't God. And not only would they see that he wasn't God, they would realize that he was the opposite of God, that he was cursed by God because Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, a hanged man is cursed by God. And that was just the type of display that these leaders wanted. And so the trial is one of high political theater. There's tension with every party involved. There's constant angling in the interactions between Pilate and Jesus and Pilate and the Jews and the Jews and Pilate. The stakes are the highest kind of stakes, the life and death kind of stakes, and the stakes that matter in eternity. And the flow of interaction is centered around Pilate. He's the only one that appears in every scene. And it's centered around him going out to meet the Jews, going back inside to talk to Jesus, going back out to talk to the Jews, going back inside to talk to Jesus, having Jesus flogged, going back out to talk to the Jews again, and back and forth he went. And verse 28 tells us why this is happening. It says, because these Jewish leaders didn't want to enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled and therefore they could eat the Passover. But the irony is thick. 
these Jewish leaders were so concerned about not defiling themselves while at the very same time they're manipulating the government for their sinister purposes. It just goes to show you, doesn't it, that outward cleanliness does not mean inward cleanliness. They illustrate that. And so Pilate brings Jesus inside and he asks him the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, in only a way that Jesus can do, immediately turns the table on Pontius Pilate. He says, look at verse 34, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate questions Jesus, and Jesus immediately questions Pilate. He's saying, well, what about you? What do you think? Who do you say that I am? Don't function just on what you've heard, but what do you believe about me? That's the question that Jesus requires everyone to answer. Who do you say that I am? That's the question that is the core question of faith. Friends, you're going to have to answer that question someday. What do you believe about Jesus? Is he an imposter? Is he a liar? Is he a crazy person? Or is he who he says he is? Is he the son of God? Is he the savior of the world? And if he's the son of God and the savior of the world, is he then the king over your life? Who do you say that I am? This is the question that Jesus asks to his own disciples. This is the question that Jesus asks to Pontius Pilate. This is the question that Jesus asks to you. The material king is supposed to be conducting this interview. But right out of the gate, the spiritual king has just taken control. And so Pilate sloughs off the question and shows his indifference. Am I a Jew? I don't care if you're the king of the Jews. And Jesus explains in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So you are a king, Pilate recognizes. He recognizes that Jesus has just claimed to be a spiritual king. It's not a new claim for Jesus, but it's new to Pilate. Throughout his entire ministry, Jesus has been preaching about a specific kingdom. Again and again and again, the message of the gospel is intertwined with what Jesus calls the message of the kingdom. Sometimes he even calls it the gospel of the kingdom. Here's just a few instances that are peppered throughout the gospels. All the way back in the beginning, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Luke 4.43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. 
Matthew 13, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. In Matthew 18, 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mark 9, 1. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And Luke 8, 1. Soon after they went through the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And Luke 17, 21, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus is the spiritual king who ushers in a spiritual kingdom. This kingdom will not expand through Force, he says. But he illustrates that it will only expand through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that begs the question, how do I know where the kingdom is? What does it look like? How do we define this kingdom if Jesus is indeed the king? Well, the kingdom of God can be defined perhaps most simply as occurring wherever the rule and the reign of Christ is present. The kingdom is wherever the rule and the reign of Christ is present. And so, when you put your faith in Jesus, he reigns in your heart. When men and women and boys and girls surrender themselves to the king, they welcome his rule in their life. When you choose to live in obedience by faith, That is displaying that you live within the kingdom of God that is present. And right here, right now, this morning, with hundreds of people gathered together to sing praises to God and to pray to him and to sit under the teaching of his word, the local church functions as an outpost of God's kingdom. The kingdom is real. The kingdom is present. It has a living king. It will be fully completed upon the return of Jesus. And at that time, the eternal nature of this kingdom will no longer be simply a spiritual reality. It will become an eternal physical reality as well. Jesus is a king. And he lets Pilate know that this spiritual kingdom is real. And at the very same time, It's not a threat to the physical kingdom of the Romans. And so Pilate responds to him. Look at verses 37 and 38. He says, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, 
I find no guilt in him. What is truth? It's the fundamental question. Jesus functions not only as the king, but he displays himself as a witness as well. What is truth? What is the truth that Jesus is the witness to? That's the question that helps us to think about a paradigm for reality, for the life that you live. That's the controversial question that people wrestle with for ages, and that's the question for today. A 12-year-old boy was a key witness in a crucial lawsuit, and one of the lawyers had put him through a rigorous cross-examination but he had not been able to shake his clear and undamaging testimony. And so in a stern voice, the attorney, frustrated, looked at the boy, said, your father has been telling you how to testify, hasn't he? Yes, said the boy. Now, the lawyer said with smug satisfaction, Just tell us all what your father has told you to say. Well, the boy replied, Father told me that the lawyers may try to tangle me. But if I would just be careful and tell the truth, I could say the same thing every time. Some of us go through life and we function as if our feelings are the things that define our truth. How I feel indicates what is true. John Piper said, my feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. And sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. And when that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather I plead with God, purify my perceptions of your truth, and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth. Others of us have a hard time trying to figure out how truth relates to reality, events that actually happen, and where faith fits in the middle of that. Michael Horton writes, anxiously anticipating the quite premature delivery of our triplets. I will never forget the moment that the doctor looked at me and announced, they're alive. They're all alive. That was not a foregone conclusion, at least for one of them. And until that report, my wife and I were in suspense. All of the wishful thinking even from certified medical professionals, could not alleviate that suspense, turning possibility into actuality. 
I could believe all I wanted in a successful delivery, but I had no promise to rely on, either from God or the doctors. And the intensity of my believing had nothing to do with the state of affairs. My confidence developed entirely on the words that that doctor uttered. They're all alive. Similarly, he writes, the gospel is news and good news because it reports a completed event. Faith does not make something true. Faith embraces what is true. And Jesus proclaims here to Pilate that he testifies to the truth and in fact that he is the truth. What is he testifying to? He's testifying to what he's seen and heard from the Father himself. No one has been in the presence of the Father. John 1.18 says that no one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, namely Jesus, he has made him known. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What is he testifying to? Jesus is testifying to the fact that God has a claim over the world. It's his. You are his. He created the world and everything in it. Jesus is witness to this reality. And he's been testifying to it again and again and again. And God's claim over the world is met with his love for his creation. His love for you. That he loves this creation and he loves you so much that he will not let it wallow in our sin. In our dysfunction and in our rebellion. And so Jesus comes with a message of love and forgiveness. And his kingdom is a rule of graciousness and benevolence. If you want a paradigm to understand the reality of human existence, Jesus is giving one to us right here. It's the reality of a king and a kingdom. That is truth. Jesus proclaims this as he testifies to the truth and that he is the truth. He promises the good for those who are in this kingdom of God. It's the same promise he made to people who he fed with bread, the 5,000. In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's the promise of a kingdom. It's the same promise that he made to the adulterous woman at the well in John chapter 4 when he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is truth. The reality of human history seen through the lens of a king and a kingdom And we find our most freedom, our most meaning, our greatest fulfillment under the reign of this king. And what we see in John 19 is that this king was condemned that you 
might be free. The king was condemned that you might be a free member of the kingdom. Pilate doesn't believe. He's convinced that Jesus is not a material threat. He can't see the kingdom because he doesn't believe the king. And he's not on the side of truth. And so, he seeks to release Jesus, but the Jews aren't having it. They'd rather release the criminal, the robber, Barabbas. Pilate's still in the middle here, and so he seeks to pacify them, thinking to himself, well, maybe if I have him severely beaten and flogged, they will be satisfied. And so he sent Jesus away. And the scourging was indeed brutal. It was a mockery of the spiritual king. The whip was laced with bone and rock. And the soldiers sought to tear out internal organs as they opened his flesh on his back and his sides. They put a crown of thorns on his head and drove it down into his scalp. And as he returned to Pilate, bloody and probably barely alive, Pilate presented him to the Jews again, displaying the beaten Jesus, saying, Behold the man. And it was that moment in which the Jews revealed their true intentions. Crucify him. He claims to be the Son of God. Pilate's now concerned. Maybe he really is a different kind of king. He withdraws with Jesus back to the inside asking himself the question, where is this man from? And asking Jesus the question, where did you come from? Matthew 27, 19 tells us that as Pilate takes Jesus back outside, he receives word from his wife that says, have nothing to do with the righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And after questioning Jesus one more time, he brings him back out, and instead of saying, behold the man, in chapter 19, verse 14, he presents him to the Jews and says, behold your king. And they demanded that he be crucified. And seeking to keep the peace and to remain a friend of Caesar, Pontius Pilate obliged. Barabbas was set free and Jesus was sent to the cross. There's a bit of poetry here. The name Barabbas literally means son of a father. 
They'd rather release the son of a father instead of the son of the father. There's more irony here. The Passover itself was an observance in which the Jews celebrated their freedom. Freedom from slavery so many years ago in Egypt. And on this day, they gave the criminal freedom as they set him free and they condemned the king. But it needed to be that way. The king was condemned that you might be free. What is truth? The truth is that the king was condemned that you might be free. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Freedom from the slavery to sin. Freedom from the kingdoms of the world. Freedom from the eternity in hell. The king was condemned that you might be free. And the swap that happened on that day of the son of a father for the son of the father points to the larger reality, doesn't it? Donald Barnhouse writes, Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. But I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place. For it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved the wrath of God to be poured upon me. I deserved the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. He was delivered up for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sins. This is why we speak of substitutionary atonement. Christ was my substitute. He was satisfying the debt of divine justice and holiness for me. That is why I say that Christianity can be expressed in three phrases. I deserved hell. Jesus took my hell. And all that's left for me is heaven. The heaven of the king. What is truth? The king was condemned that you might be free. That is truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we enter Holy Week and we consider the glory and the love of our Lord Jesus that is displayed in sacrifice. We pray today that you would magnify him in our hearts and our minds as we consider him. We pray that you would cause within us a deep stirring and self-reflection of our need for this King and Savior and that you would continue to foster a deep-seated and long-lasting desire to follow this King for all of our days. It is in his great and mighty name that we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen.